This morning we will be working our way through the introduction of the first letter of Peter to the church that is scattered abroad. And so in connection with that, we will be reading, first of all, from John 21, the verses 1 to 14. And you'll be able to find that on page 1250 of your pew Bibles. John 21, the verses 1 to 14. Jesus, up to this point, has been resurrected, and he's been showing himself to his disciples and speaking with them at various times. And John 21 introduces us to another occasion where Jesus has shown himself. We read there, After these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. And in this way, he showed himself. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathanael of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, We are going with you also. They went out and immediately got into the boat, and that night they caught nothing. But when the morning had now come, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Then Jesus said to them, Children, have you any food? They answered him, No. And he said to them, Cast the nets on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast, and now they were not able to draw it in because of the multitude of fish. Therefore that disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. Now when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he had removed it, and plunged into the sea. But the other disciples came in the little boat, for they were not far from land, but about 200 cubits, dragging the net with fish. Then, as soon as they had come to land, they saw a fire of coals there, and fish laid on it and bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish which you have just caught. Simon Peter went up and dragged the net to land, full of large fish, 153. And although there were so many, the net was not broken. Jesus said to them, come and eat breakfast. Yet none of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you, knowing that it was the Lord? Jesus then came and took the bread and gave it to them, and likewise the fish. This is now the third time Jesus showed himself to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. Let us now turn together to the first epistle of Peter, the first letter of Peter, and you'll be able to find that on page 1390 of your pew Bibles. So this is the same Peter who so eagerly jumped overboard to be able to be the first one to come to the Lord and who dragged the whole net of fish up to hear his master's command. The first letter of Peter. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace be multiplied. The Word of God. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. In 1620, 
a group calling themselves the Pilgrims landed in the New World. Full of hopes and dreams, they had set sail from England in order to start a new life there. To be a pilgrim in this sense was to be a wanderer, to be somebody who recognized that their home was elsewhere, someone who didn't have roots in this world. And these travelers in particular felt the truth of that statement. They had suffered under a government that had wanted them to change their religious beliefs and submit to the state church again, the Church of England. But the pilgrims wanted to hold on to their freedom of religion, and so to escape the oppression that they felt in England, they boarded the Mayflower to be able to establish a new English-speaking colony in the New World, in Plymouth, Massachusetts. There, they hoped, they would have a place where they could worship God freely. But life in the New World would be difficult. Even though they were now able to worship freely, a whole new host of problems came. Their time of relative peace and their desire for faithfulness didn't seem to help. They had already lost some colonists on the journey across the ocean. And then this was followed by the loss of almost half of the original passengers of the Mayflower in the first winter. What was God doing? They wondered, did he not want them to survive? Many of these same thoughts would have been running through the minds of those who are receiving the Apostle Peter's letters as well. There would be those among them who had suffered and fled from Israel due to persecution which had broken out against them in the early days of the Christian faith. All of these Christians had lived their new lives there as Christians in relative safety. But now they were beginning to face increased hostility and persecution from those around them. The future of Christianity seemed to be in doubt for them. Many of them would have been tempted to become bitter or disillusioned. Is this really what God intended? What was God doing? And it's in this setting that the Christians received Peter's first letter to them. Today we will see a letter to Christian pilgrims. And we'll see, first of all, a letter written by an imperfect pilgrim, and second, a letter received by imperfect pilgrims. Peter, we read in the opening, an apostle of Jesus Christ. With these words, the apostle Peter dives into a beautiful and comforting letter written to to pilgrim Christians in a large stretch of territory in the Roman Empire, found in modern-day Turkey. Peter, too, was a pilgrim, As an apostle of Jesus Christ, he had given up worldly things for the sake of following his Lord and Master. We read about his call, along with that of three other fishermen, in Matthew 4, verses 18 to 22. And Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brothers, Simon, called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Then he said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. They immediately left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. He called them and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. 
these men, men who actually are also later referred to as being in the boat with Peter when he goes out onto the water, he says, let's go fishing. And then they're the ones who join him. These men, they were giving up their livelihoods and likely their inheritances as well. And there was no hesitation there. You who had the MAF presentation last week may remember how the presenter spoke of the eagerness with which these four fishermen jumped at the opportunity to follow Jesus. He pointed out how twice we see the word immediately. In the Greek, this fact that this word is used highlights the urgency and the speed with which they left everything behind. They left behind their roots. Their Lord called and they came to him. For Peter, this would have been especially true. He had at one point considered himself to be the most loyal of Jesus' followers. But it didn't remain this way. Jesus told him how Peter would deny him three times when things became tough. And it absolutely stunned Peter when this prophecy actually came true. It broke him down. He was an imperfect pilgrim. He was a fallen sinner. Claiming to be the most devoted of followers, he was the one who had let Jesus down in the most spectacular way. Yet Jesus showed grace to him. In the hour when he failed, Jesus took that shame and misery upon himself. He bore Peter's sin on the cross. And after he arose from the dead, he took the time to restore Peter to himself in a very special way. We read in John 21 how Simon Peter, the other fisherman whom Jesus had called, and a few more disciples went out fishing. And as they came back, Jesus meets them on the beach and gives them fish for breakfast. But his coming there was for more than just to give them a meal or to show them a miracle of catching fish. And we read how it is more than that in verse 15 and following of this passage. So when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? Now consider the context here for a moment. Peter hasn't met Jesus too many times since his resurrection. And the last time he really spent time speaking about Jesus that we read of in the book of John was when he denied Jesus. And so this question would be just a stab to the heart for him. Do you love me more than these? You once claimed that you did. Do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Most assuredly, I say to you, when you were younger, you girded yourself and walked where you wished. 
But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. This he spoke, signifying by what death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, he said to Peter, follow me. And with these words, follow me, Jesus restored this broken man, this imperfect pilgrim, this sinner, to his service. What love it was on the part of Jesus Christ to do this to him. He didn't need to do this. Peter had still stayed with everyone else, with all the other disciples after the fact. And he was there to receive his Lord with joy. It's not like Peter had wandered off. But the Lord knew that Peter possessed the human nature just like everyone else. That knowing that he had denied Jesus not just once, but three times, would always stay between them if it wasn't dealt with. Every time that Peter looked at Jesus, he would be reminded of the fact that, yes, Jesus was back, but this was the same Jesus that he would fail. This was the same Jesus that he had denied. But our Lord went out of his way to show Peter that he did truly belong. Christ had died for Peter too. He was one of the disciples. He was a pilgrim. His home was not on this earth, but rather his home was in heaven. He was telling him that he belonged with his Lord. And so he restores him not just once, but three times. In asking him to feed his flock, he taught Peter that it was his task as a shepherd, along with the other disciples, to teach the good news of the gospel in which they shared, to guide them and to watch over them until they too returned home. And by saying, follow me, he was saying, Peter, you belong. It was with this knowledge and with the comfort of having a Savior whom he knew from personal experience would never give up on him that the Apostle Peter began to write to his recipients, to those who received his letter. He knew the grace that God was capable of showing. He had experienced this grace and it's out of this love that he reaches out to his audience. And we'll see how this was received by them. A letter received by imperfect pilgrims. Now, as we saw before, the people who received this letter were suffering under increased hostility and persecution. And that's something that we today can't always wrap our minds around. Of course, we see it in the news in other countries, and we pray about it from time to time. We read about it in church history books. But it's difficult to fully comprehend what many Christians in the early church went through, what they experienced when we're sitting here in relative comfort in the West. Yet despite that, we still hear of increasing opposition to Christianity here in Canada and in the States, our neighbor, closest neighbor to the South. And in the face of this rising voice against Christianity, it can be easy to become discouraged. 
We're not even facing the full extent of what early Christians faced. Maybe it'll come to that one day. We pray that it will not. We read in Hebrews 10 how they endured conflict and tribulation, how they were publicly embarrassed and reproached, how they had their property seized. It's no surprise that many of them were feeling deflated. Their faith was, as all of our faith is, less than perfect. And here it was becoming weak and shaky in the face of what was going on. And so Peter reaches out to them with love, opening with his greeting to lift them up again. And I want you to notice in the first place how he refers to them. We read, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion. Now we saw earlier what pilgrim in this sense meant. It was namely someone who didn't have their roots in their present dwelling place. But Peter goes further than that. He names them pilgrims of the dispersion. The Greek word for dispersion here is diaspora, a word that's even used today. Today it's a reference to those who are scattered around the world, but still connected in some way to their homeland. Even today it's most especially used in reference to the Jews who live outside of Israel, what they see as their covenant inheritance. They are the Jews who live in the diaspora or in the dispersion. But although the main audience here was Jews, the main recipients of Peter's letter were Jews, having become Christians, even the Jews were not tied to this former homeland, to Israel, in the same way that other Jews were. So what's Peter talking about here? Peter is talking about a different homeland. You see, Peter is directing the eyes of his readers heavenward in the same way that his Lord and Savior once directed his eyes heavenward. He was teaching them that they were not to find their hope in an earthly inheritance or in an earthly land or wealth which was so easily stripped away from them. The sum total of their belongings was not to be found in some small corner of the world, which today we call the country of Turkey. Rather, they belonged to a heavenly Father who was keeping in store for them a heavenly inheritance. And because of who their God was, he was encouraging them to hold fast to the truth, despite everything else, because that truth, that truth had value beyond anything else that the world could offer. And so he greets them in a Trinitarian way to emphasize that. First of all, he declares to them that they are elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. They are elect or chosen according to the foreknowledge, the knowledge that God had beforehand. Now it's worth it to note how the word elect is used here. Often this word is used in reference to God's choosing himself, a people, to salvation from eternity. And at first glance, you may think that it's the same case here. The rhythms that you find in this text seem similar to other passages that do talk about being elect in terms of salvation. Compare our verse today to Ephesians 1, 4-5. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world, so that idea of foreknowledge, 
that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. You get a picture of God choosing his people from eternity past. You have that reference to being made holy, which is what the word sanctification means. And if you go further in, you get a reference to belonging to Jesus Christ. So where's the disconnect here? The disconnect is the word, that the word being used here has more meanings than simply election or being chosen towards salvation. In many cases, it refers to just being chosen. And the Greek here seems to support a slightly different understanding of the word in our passage today. In the Greek, you'll find, in the Greek Bible, you'll find the word elect coming right before pilgrims in verse 1, actually. So it comes out in the way that DSC actually puts it quite well when it reads Peter's introduction being to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. What this shows is that they were not simply chosen by God, although that was true, but they were chosen to be in this specific time and in this specific place for a purpose. They are God's elect exiles, God's chosen exiles scattered about the Roman world. Their situation, the persecution and difficulty that they face is not unknown to him. He knows their struggles and he has chosen to place them in this situation. And that's a great comfort. It says that it was according to his foreknowledge. He had known this and he had planned this all along. It wasn't out of God's control that they were facing what they were. And for us today too, when we see these kinds of things happening, when we read about the uh, masterpiece cake shop incident down south where a man was taken to court, for holding fast his Christian beliefs. And we fear when we see human rights tribunals around us today going after Christians and sometimes even going after pastors because of their firmly held beliefs. And we fear. We can be reminded of the same thing, that we are not placed in this time and place without the knowledge of God. It's according to his foreknowledge that we are placed here. He knows that all of this is going on. And it's not spinning out of his control. There's a saying that's floating around out there that says, God will never give you more than you can handle. That's a terrible saying. Don't use it. You'll regularly receive more than you can handle as a simple human being who stands alone can handle in this life. When it comes to sin, yes, there's a way out. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13. But when it comes to circumstance, there are times when it will be absolutely overwhelming for you alone. It will be more than you can handle alone. But you're not handling it alone. And here's where the second point of comfort comes in for Peter's audience. 
Because not only does the Father know that they are there, and not only is He watching over them there, they have the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is using this to sanctify them, to make them holy. Their struggles have a purpose. That purpose is to make it possible for them by the power that he supplies to be obedient in Christ, even in the face of terrible persecution for the glory of God. God gives us more than we can handle so that we turn to him, so that we are reminded of the work of the Spirit in our lives and we rest and trust in him. So that's the point. They are shown by Peter by using this description of them as elect exiles, chosen exiles, that God will be with them, that God will walk by their side, that God will dwell in them, and that God will even grant them growth, all in the presence of the persecution that they face. And this is important because it's a theme of the whole letter that you see coming out time and time again. Focus on that. God would grant them growth even in the face of persecution. God would grant them growth even in the face of life giving them more than they could handle. But all that being said, none of this would be possible if it was not for the work of Jesus Christ. And so Peter closes off his introduction by directing his audience's eyes to the sprinkling blood of Jesus Christ, the one who has provided for it. He refers to the sprinkling to remind the Jews who are the main recipients of this letter, of the Old Testament sacrifices in which blood was sprinkled on the people. And this was done as a sign of the covenant God, of the covenant that God had made with his people, that they would be his and that their guilt was taken away. In Christ, they didn't have to worry if God would come through for them, because he had come through for them. Christ had set everything right with God, and so those who received Paul's letter could be assured that their heavenly country, their heavenly inheritance was waiting for them. They could speak boldly, and these Christians could stand firm, Because their triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit was on their side. He would provide. He would grant them growth, even in the midst of persecution. Peter's audience lived through that, as have many Christians in the millennia which followed. It was the knowledge that God was their God, and that they belonged to Him that gave them the strength to persevere. The pilgrims found this to be true as well. They persevered in prayer and in reaching out to God. And in the short term, he provided for them Native American allies named Squanto and Massasoit. Squanto taught them to farm and to prepare for and survive the winters of this strange new world. And with that produce, they were able to establish relationships with the men of Massasoit's tribe, celebrating the very first Thanksgiving together. Yet, it was not just seeds that they had planted, not just corn that they had planted, but they had also planted the bodies of their friends and their loved ones. And this reminded them 
that this was not their home. Even in the face of that, as things were getting better for them, they were reminded again, and they would be forever reminded that their eyes were to be fixed heavenward. Beloved, you and I are pilgrims in the same sense as well. And if you're not a Christian here today, I would encourage you to give up your earthly attachments and join us in our pilgrimage through this world, through this life. For we are headed to a better place. This broken world is not the end. We are traveling as if through exile. And this is our guide, that though we are imperfect pilgrims, and though we fall short, we are washed clean by the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. And we belong to our triune God. And God, our God, will never let go of those whose faith is in Christ. Rather, even the difficulties and the trials of life will become opportunities for us to change and to grow and to lean on God our Father until we are finally made perfect on that last day before the holy throne of God. Amen.